0: May you bless the thoughts of my heart and the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Be with me as we speak. May you bless this time in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we may know you and the power of your coming to us in glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is uh, Father Ryan Betway, and I'm uh, a pastor here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Uh, I'm really excited to be with all of you today and uh, getting to look at uh, today this, this dual-pronged uh, our, our Sunday of Christmas, and, uh, and yet it's also a feast day. Um, it, it is the uh, feast day of St. Stephen, uh, the first martyr of the church. And if you were as perplexed as me to hear that news at the beginning of the service, um, then you're you're in good company. I'm with you. Uh, I I, I actually did a little bit of research on why these uh, these two days coincide, and it's a a rather uh, idiosyncratic quirk of when – I don't really remember exactly what it was, but something around the uh, 4th or 5th century happened related to St. Um, Stephen's uh, Bones and uh, their relationship to wh- where they moved from one place to another. And that happened on December 26th. So, now, how to tie these two uh, days together then as a theme... For a sermon, then, when the when the tie is around the moving of bones, uh, 1600 years ago, there actually is a fascinating uh, tie that we're going to get to. But um, but I just wanted to uh, mention that at the beginning because I think providentially the Lord gives us a really beautiful picture of uh, of, of of a connection between. Uh, St. Stephen, who, again, is the first martyr of the church and the coming of Jesus himself uh, in the Christmas story, in, uh, in his coming as a baby in Bethlehem. And one of the things that I, I noticed as I was thinking this passage through, uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about Stephen just as a refresher. So uh, St. Stephen is... The first martyr of the church, and we see his story in Acts. He comes; he's brought before the Sanhedrin, and he's uh, uh, the the people uh, there are obviously uh, they are livid with him, and they're frustrated with his his story. He's a threat to their power. He's a threat to the establishment, and and there uh, and uh, and yet he has also uh, been a man who has done no harm. He is a man. Who is testified of in Acts as one of the first seven deacons of the church, uh, and was chosen because of his faithfulness and because of his love and care, and, and being a man of uh, who is above reproach, uh, a, a man who uh, about whom was uh, there was no there, there was no possible way that you could actually. Uh, look at him and say that he had done any wrong in his life, and yet the the very uh, what ends up happening to him is he comes before these people, uh, before the Sanhedrin, and testifies, not the way that you would if you were interested in saving your life, but he testifies in such a way uh, as to what, what ends up getting him. Uh, pulled out of the city and stoned. And I want to read just a quick excerpt from his testimony. It says this, Our fathers had the tent of the witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought in Joshua when he had disposed the nations of the Lord, drove out before our fathers, So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God. You, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You now, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I don't know about you, but coming before a group of people who have the authority to take your life, to, to uh, throw you into prison and, and do terrible things to you. If you're, if you're looking to preserve that, you don't lead with you stiff-necked people. This is obviously something uh, that Stephen has, has seen. This is something that, this, there is a message, there is something about his conviction that goes so deep that he's willing to use this opportunity to call the people to test. More concerned for their well-being, more concerned with their hearts than with his own physical life. And in fact, at the very end of this story, as Stephen is stoned outside of the city gates, as the people pick up stones and what they believe they are doing to fulfill the law of God, of casting out a heretic from their midst, casting out the one who God says to cast out, who is is speaking falsehood. He says, along the lines of what Jesus says at the end of his life and ministry on the cross, he says that, he says, may we pray. Sorry, I lost the passage. He says, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. His concern is for these people. His heart is for them. You have to wonder, what is it? What is it about Stephen that has changed? What is it about him that gives him this level of confidence, this level of of conviction, this level of care for other people, the very people who are picking up stones and killing him? What is it? What is it there? In fact, one of the people... Who looked on lovingly at his disciples in this moment, this moment that they picked up stones and killed a man for, for blasphemy, who was testifying to the loving kindness and the coming of Jesus. One of these people was Saul of Tarsus. He he speaks of himself later in Acts as having been the one holding their coats. The one looking on happily—you can imagine him with a smile and a grin, just seeing, with ha- with that happy grin, how glad he was to see that yet another one of the way was being was getting their comeuppance, was being placed in the was was uh, that once again their land was being rid of this great heresy. And yet, a little while later, we see the same thing happen with Paul. We see the same thing where something happens in his life. Something happens to change him. What is it that Paul sees? What is it that Stephen saw? What is it that they witnessed We see that this is, in fact, that great news that Paul even writes of in his ministry in in our passage today from Titus. You see, Titus was written to a small church plant that uh, they they were struggling to uh, to find their their uh, traction. They were they were trying to figure out what is it that we're supposed to do with this gospel story? What are we supposed to do with this news What are we supposed to do with this? And his main point was learn how to live. Learn how to live above reproach. Learn how to live in the land and serve the people in your midst. It's his basic thesis of his letter to Titus as he's working with this church plant. There's some obvious threads that we can draw from that. In our own story of Corpus Christi. But even more so, I, I want to talk about today and focus on what it means for us individually and, and as a whole to take the good news of Jesus Christ coming, his incarnation, and manifesting it to the world in our midst. What is so joyful about this. What what does it mean that Jesus' very joy, his own joy has come to the world? Well basically it's this is this is a news. The the passage in Titus talks about it as an epiphany. It talks about it as as something that appears something that comes into the midst and it changes it. Think of it not so much as, uh, as, as someone coming through a door appears in our midst. Or, or a shining light. Uh, more, more so, think of it as light shining into darkness. It's something that appears. It's always been there and yet now it is manifestly visible. It is manifestly seen. And you know that feeling of waking up in the morning where where your eyes take several seconds to adjust and it's just difficult to kind of uh, you're you're a, you're a bit uh, you're a bit uh, disoriented. That's the kind of epiphany that it is. That's the the kind of uh, suddenness. That's this kind of jarring reality that Jesus himself inaugurates in his coming and his epiphany, his appearance as Paul says here. You there is no possible solution other than to be changed. When you are changed by this appearance, there's no possible solution other than to continue to be changed. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he's saying that the old way, that way of being a co hater co-holder looking on evil and calling it good is no longer acceptable but we cast out that old life and live into the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior as it appears that is what the good news is it is news it's manifestly glorious Revelatory news. It is a testimony that God Himself gives us in coming. It is a testimony about a person. And that testimony is that the Savior reigns. The Savior reigns. Joy to the world. The bedrock of this Savior reigning is that it rests on a person. Salvation itself rests upon a person. We we can give, I can regale you with stories all day long about the failure of institutions in our midst, in our own society and throughout history, of individuals who have been put forward and trusted, of cultures that have, uh, that have, crumbled upon their own hypocrisy. And even theological and philosophical systems that while put forward as as ideas to, to manifest the goodness of God end up doing the exact opposite. But remember that our salvation does not rest upon any one of these things. It rests on a person. It rests on the one who was the righteousness of God himself, who brought the justice of God to bear, the uprightness and the holiness of God coming to earth, coming to save, coming to love his neighbor as himself. He is the savior. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. My own story began in this very town where we sit now. Uh, in 1984, I was born in Falls Church, Virginia, and I moved, I lived in Springfield, Virginia. I was brought up in a church less than a mile from here on Franconia Road. And never in a million years would I have thought that I'd be here uh, getting the opportunity to serve and, and being a part of sharing this good news in this place that I, uh, I, I knew and loved as a boy and yet has such an, uh, had, had such a difficult uh, difficult time in my 20s when I moved away from here of connecting my past to what I was realizing was, uh, was an error, that I, I was brought up with, uh, with great, uh, with great um, in, in my 20s, what I realized was my, uh, my story was changing, that God was leading me in another direction, and then I was realizing what I was brought up with was, uh, was, was problematic, that there were elements of my story that were broken. There were elements of my story that uh, the things that I had trusted were, were a falsehood, or were, were actually just, uh, were, were just leading me in a dire- direction that I did not want that I not, truly did not believe was, was true. So what, what am I meant to do with that? Well, what I get to do now, what I get to recognize in standing here? In testifying to this good news in the same way that Paul did, in the same way that St. Stephen did, it, the, the opportunity that I get to, to do is that, that same love that compelled me in my, in my 20s as I, when I really started taking my faith seriously and, and, and beginning to reconcile my past and the hard work I've done up to that point of, of doing the healing and forgiveness along the way. It, it actually, it, it is a beautiful opportunity to recognize that it is, it is the very thing that brings us to forgiveness and reconciliation, renewal, if you will, that draws us each and every day to God himself that it's not just that first time we're drawn to God, but in fact, all of those times. How are we drawn to the grace of God in Christ? Through the Holy Spirit, alive and at work in the world. He justified us through the loving kindness of God himself, through that grace in Christ The joy of God in Christ is what compels us to see that wonderful mystery of the incarnate flesh laid bare and crying in a manger, vulnerable and needy, and yet whose appearance inaugurated this new age of life in the spirit of God. This paradox, this tension, we cannot ignore this is the very context in which Titus is planting this church. This is the very context that we now, in the age of the church, continue to bear that torch forward. And literally, in the case of our, our, our lovely church plant here, Corpus Christi, what we get to do is carry that torch together and to continue to announce his reigning, his coming That Jesus is with us and reigns today as God, as king on high. Brothers and sisters, I I implore you to find that joy in our midst, to search. Where is it? Where is it that he compels you, compels you to trust the grace of God in Christ more To look to that child just as Stephen, just as Paul. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us so many testimonies through the centuries, through the millennia, Lord, to look to to the power of your glory in our midst and your loving kindness compelling us, bringing us to you. And Lord, we pray today as we approach your table, as we come to you in prayer, Lord, that we would see your loving kindness and your goodness to us as a savior appearing in our midst. Lord, may you give us today an epiphany. That is, may you be with us, our Emmanuel, our joy to the world, for you have come. In Jesus' name, amen.